क्या नाम है विक्रम कुमार कहाँ से आए हो पानीपत से उम्र क्या है अड़तालीस किस ट्रेड के लिए अप्लाई किया कारपेंटर अच्छा कैसे पता लगा मैं मेरे को पता लगा था एच आर एन के में मैंने किया था बीस तारीख को और फिर मैंने कल मोबाइल देख रहा था उसमें पता लगा रोहतक में चल रही है भर्ती फिर मैं सुबह इधर आया और इंटरव्यू दिया इंटरव्यू अच्छा लगा इसराइल में जो युद्ध चल रहा है आपको पता है हाँ जी तो फिर भी क्यों जा रहे हो देखो यहाँ काम धंधे है नहीं बेरोजगारी है सबसे मुद्दा बेरोजगारी का काम रहे नहीं अब क्या करेंगे वहाँ भी करना यहाँ भी करना मौत तो देखो यहाँ भी आनी और वहाँ भी आनी है मौत से क्या डरना मेरा नाम विकास कुमार है जी कहाँ से आए हो मैं पानीपत से आया जी एज क्या है एज मेरी सत्ताईस साल है जी अच्छा और पासपोर्ट है पासपोर्ट है जी मैंने तत्काल में बनवाया जी अच्छा ये बताओ कि घर में कमाने वाला कौन है कोई नहीं जी मैं अकेला हूँ जी तो कहाँ के लिए अप्लाई करोगे इसराइल के लिए जी वहाँ दिक्कत चल रही है आपको पता है कोई दिक्कत नहीं जी करना कहना है जी पैसे दे रही सरकार भेज रही जिम्मेदारी तो सरकार की है जी नहीं वहाँ युद्ध चल रहा है ऑलरेडी उसका क्या हो अब तो युद्ध खत्म हो गया किसने बताया युद्ध ही भी इतनी खबर नहीं आती जी खबर नहीं आती इसलिए युद्ध बंद हो गया हाँ जी कितना पैसा मिलेगा एक इंडिया के हिसाब से मिलेगा जी रहना खाना पीना रहना खाना पीना अपना है जी वो अपने पीछे तो इकट्ठेगा जी वहाँ से मजबूरी में जा रहे हो शौक में जा रहे हो मजबूरी में जा रहे जी यहाँ रोजगार यहाँ दस में बारह बारह घंटे की ड्यूटी जी पानीपत में और वहाँ पे वहाँ से कम से कम काम करेंगे पैसे बढ़िया मिलेंगे अपना घर बनाओगे इंडिया में आके दो पीछे बचेंगे जी रोजगार करेंगे विक्रम कुमार एंड विकास कुमार आर अमंग हंड्रेड्स ऑफ इंडियन वर्कर्स फॉर अप्लाइंग फॉर ब्लू कॉलर जॉब्स इन इसराइल इसराइल इज एंगेज्ड इन वन ऑफ द मोस्ट ब्रूटल वॉर्स ऑफ दिस सेंचुरी विद पैलेस्टाइन and now according to global reports it's facing a shortage of construction workers many of whom used to be palestinians india is trying to recruit and send 10000 construction workers to israel the job drive is being run by the indian and israeli governments it's part of a mobility agreement signed between the two countries in may and it has possibly been sped up after a discussion between the prime ministers of the two countries to that effect in december And last week more than 1300 workers were interviewed and tested in Haryana. This week a similar drive is going on in Uttar Pradesh. The salary is being offered to these applicants for jobs such as carpentry and masonry are in some cases 12 times of what they get in India. They're extremely alluring especially for workers like Vikram and Vikas in states like Haryana which has the highest levels of unemployment in the country. So what is this recruitment drive all about? Why is India sending workers to a country from where it rescued hundreds of them just 3 months ago? What is the legal framework around such emigration? What ensures the safety and well-being of these workers in Israel? And does this agreement signed in May but being executed now, 3 months into this brutal war, say something about India's stance on the war itself? We will try and answer these and several more questions in today's deep dive. It's Thursday the 25th of January. I'm your host Anirban Chaudhary and this is the morning brief.
Here's Arindam Bagchi, a spokesperson for the Ministry of External Affairs in a press briefing on October 12th, five days after the attack on Israel by Hamas, which triggered the latest conflict. Our focus right now is to make sure that those Indians who are in Israel are able to come out of Israel. I think there are about 18,000 odd Indian citizens. A small percentage of that are Indian uh, students. You said how worrisome is the situation? Of course, look, a situation where there is there is conflict going on is of concern. But uh, I would request Indian citizens there to follow the advisories issued by our mission in Tel Aviv. And they are the best judge. And be cautious, take the precautions. And if they feel that need assistance to reach out to our embassy. Here's his colleague Randhir Jaiswal on January 19th this year. We have mobility partnership with several countries across the world and uh, we have an agreement now with Israel as well. The agreement itself started long before the conflict erupted. We concluded it, initialed it much before. Uh, The idea behind this agreement was that we put in place an institutional mechanism for which regulates migration to that country. We already have a large number of people especially in the caregiving sector in Israel. Through this agreement, we want to ensure that there is regulated migration and the rights of the people people who go there are protected. What happened in between was that Israel, especially a lobbying body of its builders, asked India for workers. Here's more. A press release on December 12th from Israel's Foreign Affairs Ministry said that its Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu spoke with Indian PM Narendra Modi on issues including, and I quote, advancing the arrival of foreign workers from India to the state of Israel. Here's Bakhti again in a press briefing on December 21st when asked if Indian workers were being sent to replace Palestinians. Let me refer you to the response given to the Rajya Sabha parliamentary question on December 14th that there have been no discussions with Israel regarding possible replacement of Palestinian laborers with Indian workers. I think that statement stands and I have nothing to clarify on that. Of course, on a larger perspective, India has been looking at labor mobility agreements around the world so that our citizens get access to the global workplace, they are treated fairly, their rights are protected. If you're looking at the specific job opportunities, Indian citizens are uh, free to go abroad and take job opportunities. So... I'm not going to comment on what the uh, Israeli readout about the conversation is. Prime Minister's office has already issued something on the statement. But if somebody's taking a job on their own or somebody's organizing, Indian citizens do go abroad on their own. It doesn't have to be through any G2G mechanisms. Uh, opportunities for jobs abroad are circulated by various bodies uh, without any specific G2G mechanism. Still, on December 26th, the National Skill Development Corporation, or NSDC, a non-profit organization for skill development which is 49% owned by the government, put up 10,000 job vacancies in Israel. There were conditions to be met like candidates should have passed the 10th standard high school exam, have basic knowledge of English, should be physically fit and have no previous experience of Israel. There were links to descriptions of jobs and links to apply for them. The annual salary being offered was over 16 lakh rupees. By then, the state governments of Haryana and UP had also begun to act. They had advertised the jobs on their employment or Rosgar portals, also informing workers via text messages about the opportunities. So, last Monday morning, long queues could be seen leading up to a university in Rotak, Haryana the venue for the interviews and tests. My colleague from the Times of India, Sat Singh, spoke to some of the applicants. 
You heard two of them in the beginning of the episode. Here are some more. जसवीर पानू है सर कहाँ से गांव मोहला तहसीलवास डिस्ट्रिक्ट हिसार यू चल रहा है सर बॉर्डर के पास में चल रहा है अंदर जहाँ पे गवर्नमेंट ने सिक्योरिटी दी है कहा है इसराइल की तरफ से भी स्टेटमेंट आ चुकी है सर कि जो भी कैंडिडेट आएंगे उनको सेफ जोन में ही काम दिया जाएगा वार जोन में किसी को भी नहीं भेजा जाएगा दो स्टेटमेंट की बात करें वो किस में आई है वो क्या सर इसराइल की ऑफिशियल स्टेटमेंट है सर जो किस चीज़ भी आई है मतलब आपने कहाँ देखा कहीं फेक तो नहीं है नहीं फेक नहीं है सर ये जो आयर करने के लिए उन्होंने अपने टीम भेजी हुई है ना इसराइल से उनके पास में पूरा डाटा है सर नहीं आपको कैसे पता मैं जानकारी आ, आपके पास आप, कैसे न्यूज चैनलों से ही पता चला था सर खतरा तो सर हर काम में है कहाँ पे नहीं है एक किसान मजदूर किसान जाता है वहाँ पे खेत में उसको जहरीला कोई भी जीव जानवर काट सकता है कुछ भी हो सकता है आज से कहीं पे भी हो सकते है सर जरूरी नहीं है की वही पे आपको बीमा वगैरह मिलेगा वहाँ पे जाओगे तो हाँ सर वो जैसे हमारे इंडिया में एक एम्प्लॉय का प्रोसीजर होता है सेम वही प्रोसीजर है सर हमारे शर्मा बिहार पटना अच्छा क्या उम्र है उनचालीस वर्ष और यहाँ क्या करने आए यहाँ सर इंटरव्यू के लिए आए थे इजराइल जाने के लिए फिर क्या रहा यहाँ तो इंट्री नहीं करने दे रहे लोग बस ओनली हरियाणा का होगा बिहार का और यूपी का लोग का नहीं सुनील कुमार जी कहाँ से आए हैं जींद से अच्छा क्या उम्र है थर्टी सेवन किस ट्रेड के लिए अप्लाई किया हुआ है प्लस्तर के लिए देखो इंडिया जो सभी देशों का दोस्त रहा है इसे में कोई प्रॉब्लम नहीं है उधर भी कोई प्रॉब्लम नहीं आएगी अब पीछे देख लो रूस का और यूक्रेन का युद्ध था उस यूक्रेन से इंडिया वाले जितने भी देश सभी को सुरक्षित बुला लिया तो ऐसी कोई प्रॉब्लम नहीं आने देंगे मोदी जी हैं बिल्कुल For soul earners like them, the dangers were too small a price to pay for the money that they could earn. On the same day, Sat also spoke to Ajay Kumar Raina, Group General Counsel at the NSDC. ये ड्राइव अपने भारत सरकार और इजराइल सरकार जो है उनका एक बीच में एक समझौता हुआ है जिससे उनको करीब दस हजार Raina basically said the following The NSDC has asked all state governments to mobilize candidates UP and Haryana are only the first ones to take the initiative meaning there may be more The data from registered candidates was sent to the Population and Immigration Authority or PIBA as he was referring to in Israel it was PIBA that had shortlisted candidates to be interviewed Selected candidates will now undergo medical and police clearance and within 30 days of that fly to Israel For those who do not have passports the issuance of passports would be expedited medical insurance would be provided to the workers they would be treated at par with israeli citizens not just tenth pass even candidates who have passed the fifth or sixth standard examinations will be considered rana said no candidate will be charged for the tests but once selected they will have to bear airfare expenses 
By the way, according to the website of the Ministry of External Affairs, the government in 2003 withdrew the requirement on an individual immigrant to deposit a one-way economy class airfare. Anyway, Rana also said PIBA has been asked not to deploy any worker in the war zone and they would consider it. Of course, reports have quoted Israeli government officials saying that no worker would be deployed in the war zone. I also spoke to Kunal Silku, Special Secretary, Labour Training and Employment in the UP government, who's spearheading the ongoing job drive in the state. So when NSDC International got in touch with us, our uh, assistant labor commissioners, the ALCs, who are our labor officers um, in the district, they organized various campaigns. They visited various these labor addas and they also visited various sites where the workers are working. They also publicized all these requirements in local newspapers. Even from the headquarter level also, we published uh, these materials in papers and our ministers also gave a press briefing that was also widely covered in various newspapers. So this was how we actually informed all the workers. Some workers we could directly approach, the other workers, they approached our labor offices and from there the shortlisting was made. After shortlisting the uh, laborers from uh, districts, a compiled list was sent to Israel's PIBA team and then they vetted that list and reverted it back with the selected candidates. So this is how we have selected the candidates. We are primarily focused with uh, arranging the workers and getting them tested so that they are selected. And we have also been given a medical performa in which we have to get the medical conducted and we have to get their passports made. So this much thing is being done with us. Beyond that, all the external affair ministry's requirements, they will be taken care by NSDC International and, and maybe NSD or MEA. Understood. As someone who's spearheading the project, uh, is it somewhat of a matter of concern for you that, you know, people from the state are going to a country which is currently at war? As we have been told, these, these workers will be deployed on the Israeli territory. They will not be deployed in anywhere outside Israeli territory. Plus, the Israel condition is, is shown in all the news media and all the prime newspapers. So, all the workers who have opted for this position, they are also very much aware and their knowledge and my knowledge is the same. Because as per my knowledge, these workers are not to be used in any fashion in the war efforts or for the war purposes. They will be deployed in Israel only. How many people do you think uh, will really turn up for these one week of tests? See, as per our initial discussion, uh, our field level officers have told that there is a lot of euphoria and enthusiasm among workers for this opportunity. We have already shortlisted around 10 to 11,000 workers who are willing and, and whose name has been shortlisted. And even for this drive, we are um, eyeing to bring at least 600 to 800 workers every uh, day. And it's a seven-day drive, so it comes to be around four to 5,000 workers, which we are eyeing. We should easily be getting those 5,000 workers. It's the workers that we interviewed in Haryana had just one thing to say that, you know, they're doing it. They they use the term majburi. Uh, you know, they, they said that they're doing it out of compulsion because uh, they are too underpaid. The job situation, the employment situation is extremely dismal there. And here it's a great initiative by the government that, you know, at least they're sending them to a place which at least gives money, even though, you know, safety, etc. is a matter of concern. Do you think... 
a similar situation is there in up as well in terms of uh, the job situation i don't know what has been your experience or uh, thing with the haryana but if i talk about uttar pradesh then here we have a minimum wages act and all the construction laborers are covered by the minimum wages act no construction laborer working anywhere in the state of up gets salary which is lower than the minimum wage that minimum wage for unskilled workers comes to be around 11 to 12000 rupees per month obviously see if you compare the payout potentials of foreign countries that will be much more higher i'm pretty sure there is no any kind of exploitation that happens in up also but definitely we want to provide better opportunities to our workers now as silku says up's unemployment numbers are not a matter of concern per se In fact, they're way below Haryana's, which was 37% in December, according to the Center for Monitoring Indian Economy. 37%. That's 4.5 times the national average. But while the number may vary from state to state, the overall problem looms large. According to the Periodic Labour Force Survey, unemployment rates in India have fallen from almost 9% in 2017-18 to 5.1% in 2022-23. But as my ET colleague Indulekha Arvind wrote in December, economists have said unemployment figures are inadequate to capture the distress in India's labour market, which includes issues like underemployment, low participation of women in the labour force, and youth unemployment. I asked Usman Javed, a consultant at human rights advocacy group Fair Square, how this malaise is where all migrant labor problems start. Any analysis of why people want to emigrate out of India has to take that into account and all the reporting on this particular issue highlights that fact that people reporters repeatedly ask workers who are waiting in line outside these centers uh, do you know of that are involved in going to a conflict zone for work and they say we know the risk but it is better to die working over there than die unemployed over here there is a very stark reality in that so we have a low unemployment rate but we have a very high incidence of underemployment so we suffer from chronic underemployment in this country which is to say that uh, most of our workers are employed in ways that pay very less and their productivity is very low if you look at the latest numbers i think for plfs 23 it's only about a quarter of indians who are in regular salaried work and if you take the median income of even that category that modality of employment which is the best modality of employment as opposed to self employed or informal workers who make up the other three quarters median salaries are in the range of i think 10 to 12000 rupees in india if you earn 40000 rupees you're in the top decile of uh, income earners so the gap between having a dignified remunerative employment at home versus having remunerative employment at very high risk abroad is what you see exemplified in these remarks that are made by these people right no i couldn't agree more uh usman let's talk about the immigration laws and you know what is the legal framework around the indians going abroad uh, i mean the migrant workers and the migrant laborers uh for that we need to understand the immigration act of 1983 Could you tell me some of the salient features very simplified which are also relevant to the issue that we are discussing today 
You're right that the Immigration Act of 1983 is basically the main legal instrument that governs labor immigration from India. 83 Act establishes an authority called the Protector General of Immigrants, so or Protector of Immigrants, POE. So the, the POE has the authority to grant licenses to recruiting agencies. It is only recruited agencies that have licensed recruitment agents who can do recruitment for overseas in India. Yeah. So labor immigration has to go through the POE. Any worker who is wanting to apply for work outside, who is going on a work visa, their work visa also comes through the POE. There is a category called uh, ECR. So ECR is immigration check required. It is basically, if we can think of it as a proxy for blue-collar migrants who are migrating overseas for work. It applies to people who have education levels below 10th standard and who are migrating to a list of 18 countries, which are mostly where sort of heavily blue-collar workers migrate to from India. So it is a category that allows immigration officials to be careful and to pay extra attention when vetting an application. According to the External Affairs Ministry website, ECR countries are those that do not have strict laws regulating the entry and employment of foreign nationals. Now, during the press conference I played before, Jaiswal was asked if Israel should be now also brought in the ECR list. Here's what he said. So far as uh, the question of uh, putting, whether uh, putting Israel on the list of ECR countries so that you know, they come and e-migrate is concerned. Let me tell you that labor laws in Israel are very strict, robust. It's an OECD country, so therefore labor laws are such that it provides for protection of migrant rights, labor rights. On our part, of course, we are very conscious of our responsibility to give, provide security and safety to our people who are abroad. The conflict erupted in Israel. You saw that we launched Operation Ajay so that we could evacuate all those people who wanted to come back from there. Uh, having said that, we remain committed to safe and legal mobility and migration. Now hold that thought on Israel's treatment of its migrant laborers. We'll come back to that in a bit. For now, here's the remainder of my conversation with Usman. One very interesting thing that I found out when I was looking through points on which the POE can actually reject immigration applications was keeping in mind the prevailing circumstances in a country if they're not in the interest of the applicant to emigrate. So do you think the fact that Israel is at war and the prevailing circumstances in Israel is, you know, do you think they are significant in this regard? Of course, they're significant. I mean, even in the attack that happened on the 7th of October, there were migrant workers, Thai migrant workers who were killed. And there were uh, Thai and Nepali migrant workers who were taken hostage. Uh, so the context which has led to this demand for replacement workers from India, that context itself has evidence showing that there is a real and present danger to the lives of these workers. And it's also the case that even in the past, there are other instances as well where Indian workers have actually died in conflict zones. For instance, in I think it was in 2018 that uh, nearly 40 workers died in an attack in Iraq for instance, which parliamentarians in India took a while to even acknowledge. So the track record when it comes to ensuring worker safety, especially of blue-collar workers abroad by the Indian states, is quite poor. So just talking about, uh, you know, global laws that protect 
migrant laborers across the world. Would you tell me a little bit about the International Labor Organization's Migration for Employment Convention in 1949 and Migration Workers Convention in 1975, which I think are the broadest laws that protect these workers? Yeah, you're right that they are sort of very broad conventions. So the 1949 one basically talks about the states that ratify it, they, they agree to provide basic services for migrant workers and services that are at par with what they provide there, their nationals. So things like medical services, things like sort of protecting them from propaganda, making sure information is, the correct information is available. Also ensuring that these states share proper data with the ILO on uh, if, if it is demanded. Why I'm mentioning that is because data on international labor migration continues to remain a murky subject because, well, there are irregular channels of migration that people are forced to use because of a sort of structural reasons. For instance, even migrants going from India pay a huge amount of money to fund their own recruitment fee. And as per the ILO, recruitment charges are to be borne by the employer. So the first convention that you referred to, the one in 1949, seeks to kind of protect migrant workers from this kind of abuse. The second one is a sort of the emphasis there, once again, is on curbing discrimination, I'll say, and making sure that these workers who go there have equal opportunity and equal treatment with respect to employment, uh, with respect to access to social security, uh, trade unions, and sort of collective freedoms and cultural rights of persons. Uh, it also emphasizes that states should aim for reunification of families of migrants. But both of these conventions, one must remember that India is not a signatory to. And that fact makes India's migrant laborers all the more vulnerable. According to government figures, there are more than 13.5 million non-resident Indians working overseas. The International Labour Organization in a 2018 note had said a large number of them are low and semi-skilled workers. Nicholas McGeehan, a director at Fair Square and former researcher at Human Rights Watch, has been studying migrant labour problems in the Gulf for years. I've been working on uh, migrant worker abuses in the Gulf for about 20 years now. As you said, I mean, five of those were spent at Human Rights Watch. I lived in Abu Dhabi for, for four years, which is what got me interested in the topic. And the situation there for Indian workers and for you know other nationalities, mostly South Asian, is really quite dire and entirely at odds with the wealth of the country. You know, migrant workers in low-paid sectors of those economies are horrendously and systematically mistreated. People often talk about the, the system being similar to forced labour, and I would I would concur with that. Workers are subjected to a, a series of mutually reinforcing control mechanisms which enable employers to exert complete control over them. And the racial discrimination that is endemic in that part of the world, regrettably, leads to horrendous abuse and exploitation. There are about nearly 10 million migrant workers from India in the Gulf. And I believe they constituted nearly about 50% of the, of the entire population. So although that is a, you know, it's a small portion of India's population, but in and of itself, a huge number of people. Nick said he was actually shocked to find that Israel is not much different. The, the situation in Israel is similar to, to what's going on in the Gulf. But yeah, it's a, it's a really quite a dire situation. Israel relies on foreign labour for certain sectors of its economy as well. 
So relies often on African labour for domestic caregiving services. It had relied on Palestinian labour for much of its construction. And it relies on Thai workers, people from Thailand, for its agricultural sector. Now, that's the sector that I did a report on for Human Rights Watch in 2015. I think one of the things that that surprised me, that shocked me, was I had not expected to find similar living and working conditions in Israel as I had found doing work and research in the Gulf. But actually, that's that was the case. You know, the 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 belief that Israel, you know, as a as a state that has a far better functioning bureaucracy and to some extent a far more functional government, a better run country, you might say, I had assumed that this would filter down to the treatment of non-nationals in these sectors. And yet, Thai workers in, in agriculture are treated abysmally. Um, they're entirely segregated from the local population. Their living conditions were horrendous. They were living in ramshackle accommodation, um, makeshift huts almost that were put together um, and weren't, you know, didn't constitute housing in any any real sense of the word. And And the same sort of abuses, extremely long hours, lack of pay, extreme heat, inability to access healthcare, inability to access the courts. So really a very similar situation. Now that was for agriculture. I never did any research into Palestinians in construction. From what I'm aware of that was construction as a sector generally is very prone to abuse. My understanding is that Palestinians in construction um, had a pretty bad time. But again, um, I wouldn't say I was an expert on that particular sector. What are your thoughts on on the, on the, on the whole issue of Uh, Indians sending migrant laborers to Israel? I think it's a huge problem on on a variety of levels. The the sector uh, in Israel has been demonstrated to be, or rather the treatment of foreign nationals in, in Israel has been demonstrated to be deeply problematic. These workers are not properly protected in a similar way that they're not protected in the Gulf. We know that the Indian state does not put significant pressure on these receiving states to protect their rights. India is content to get a large number of workers out of the country and contributing economically through sending back remittances. So they don't ask necessarily for particular rights to be upheld. They don't want to rock the boat. And yet they're sending their workers into conditions that they know are going to lead to probably quite serious and systematic abuse. And in some cases, it's likely that some workers won't come home. Um, So that's the obvious reason. Now, Israel has been globally banned because of its attacks on Palestine. The South African government, in fact, has taken it to the International Court of Justice, accusing it of genocidal acts. To be sure, India has repeatedly made its stance on the overall Israel-Palestine war very, very clear. Here's Jaswal again. Our position on Israel-Gaza issue has been very clearly articulated on multiple occasions. Our position is on the conflict, the Israel-Hamas conflict is, it has been consistent and steadfast. We have condemned terrorism. We have called for release of hostages. We have sought protection of civilians. And we have also provided, we've called for provision of humanitarian assistance. And of course, we stand for a long-term two-state solution. So this is India's position. And this is the position that we support. But Nick told me that sending labourers who will most likely replace Palestinian workers dilutes that position. I mean, Palestinian labour provided all of the labour or much of the labour in Israel construction sector. Those labourers are no longer available to Israel. The sector is in economic crisis or potential economic crisis because of that. 
and that's why they need those workers. I think any any protestation to the contrary does not bear scrutiny. What extra precautions do you think the Indian government should take to ensure that the laborers are protected? Well, I think that the, they need to be cognizant of what the risks are. Like the, the risk to Indian workers in the construction sector in Israel comes primarily from abusive and exploitative treatment from employers. And the the risk of, for example, a worker being hit by a Hamas rocket, to be honest, is is negligible to the point that it can be discounted. As you said, you know, there is the the, the possibility of a regional conflagration um, which would place Indian workers in a deeply perilous situation. And um, that should be taken into account as well. India is a powerful geopolitical actor. Um, Israel wants to be on good terms with India. India can demand labour inspections. It can demand decent paying conditions. It can demand and make sure that workers aren't paying exploitative recruitment fees. All of that stuff can happen um, if India chooses to do so. So I guess there's, there's the initial question of should those workers be sent at all? And then there's the secondary question of if they're going to be sent, what's India going to do to make sure that they're properly protected? On the face of it, this is a story of opportunity. An opportunity of people frustrated with their living conditions and desperate to make them better. And yes, it does tick a lot of boxes of how a good opportunity story ought to be. Working in a developed country, a massive jump in wages, a government-regulated emigration process which eliminates the fears of getting trapped by tugs and touts, there are assurances, there are talks of safeguards and protection. To a worker struggling to make ends meet, what's a war raging miles away in the face of all these benefits, right? But look at the broader picture and it's not difficult to see the lurking dangers. Iran's recent attack on Israel's spy agency Mossad, airstrikes in Syria and the ongoing militancy in the Suez Canal means Israel is in the middle of a region that's heating up even more rapidly than it has yet. How long will things be safe? Inside, things may not be great either. Nick is not alone in his assessment. In 2003, a report by the International Federation of Human Rights titled Migrant Workers in Israel, a Contemporary Form of Slavery found that of 300,000 migrant workers mostly brought to replace Palestinians, 65% were illegal. It also found that workers in low-paying jobs did not have adequate protection from labor laws. While the country may have advanced in technology, innovation and business, the state of the humble construction worker may not have improved much. And of course, there's the war itself. Israel's consistent attacks on Palestine and their devastating effects. So where does India stand in all this? The country has always chosen its friends very, very carefully, be it during the Russia-Ukraine war or something even as stark as Israel's annihilation of Palestine. Or even something as stark as Israel's annihilation of Palestine. While those stances have earned it detractors, it has always defended itself saying it has to see to its own benefits, be it in terms of cheap oil or enduring business relations. The last thing India would want to do in such a situation is to spoil those benefits by putting its own citizens in harm's way. 
That's all for today. You were listening to the Morning Brief. This episode was produced by Vinay Joshi and sound designed by Rajas Nayak and Indranil Bhattacharjee. Every journalistic endeavor that leaves you with deeper questions than the one it asks is a success. We hope this one did just that. Please like, share, and subscribe. The Morning Brief drops every Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday. This is your host Anirban Chaudhary signing off. Keep listening. All clips used in this episode belong to their respective owners. Credits are mentioned in the description.